reality is, I think we're, we're always looking for ways to help people win in reading the Bible. We're always looking for ways to help people. And, and we, I love it when people get that, you know, win, that first sort of win where they're like, you know, I started reading the Bible and I was able to be consistent and I, and I got lots out of it. We love hearing that. Um, but not everybody grew up reading the Bible and uh, not everybody, you know, grew up in church and all those sorts of things. And so for a lot of people, it's mystifying how to approach the Bible. Um, it, it, it gets a little bit confusing. You know, the first words in the Bible, Genesis 1-1, say this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then if you go to the first verse of the very last chapter of the Bible, if you, you go to the back cover, it, it says this in, in Revelation 21-1. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So in the beginning, God's creating a new heaven and a new earth, and at the end, he's creating a, a, he creates a heaven and earth, and in the end, he creates a new heaven and earth. And the big question is, what happened in between? You know that the Bible is one continuous story. Sometimes people say, oh, I like the Bible. It's sort of like a good storybook. It's got lots of different stories. No, it's actually one. Yes, there are different accounts in the Bible, but it's one continuous story from one end to the other. But the challenge is when you're reading the Bible, let's say you say, I'm going to take on the challenge of reading the Bible from cover to cover. You can often get lost in the middle or even near the early part. My dad, when I was young, he said he'd give me, what was the amount? I think it was 50 bucks if I'd read the Old Testament and was it 35 for the New Testament. He actually offered me money to read the Bible. He recognized there was a challenge to this book in the way it's put together. So what we've done for this fall, and this is, again, we want to help people win in reading God's Word, is um, we've ordered copies of um, the NIV version of the story. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about this book. Uh, because the Bible is one continuing story of God and his people and the work that God is doing from in the beginning to, uh, to the end, um, we want people to be able to trace that out. But often when you're reading the Bible, you get through, uh, you get to certain parts and you're like, like, do you know that some of the Bible books aren't in the right chronological order? You say, well, where did Job fit and where did this person fit? And a lot of people have a hard time figuring out the Bible timeline. This book is written, this is basically the Bible, but abridged, basically, uh, taking out, now don't get squeamish about this, but taking out the parts uh, that help you not, like you get confused, you get lost in the middle. But it's, it's, making, it's making it a streamlined story, like a novel, right? Don't you wish the Bible was written like a novel? I'm not criticizing the Bible, I'm just saying, for some of us, we just want to understand it. We just want to understand it. So what this, the story is, is it helps you to see that one continuous story. And it's not to replace the Bible, but it's to help you fall in love with the Bible and help you to understand it. So, uh, it's basically a chapter every week, a short chapter. It's all scripture. So you'll be reading scripture. So you could say, well, it's basically a Bible reading plan. Yes, but it's one that helps you to piece the whole thing together. So that's what we're going to be using in the fall. And so we're, you know, we're, we're playing you this funny video this morning, but I want to tell you that in the fall, we really want to engage reading the word of God like never before at Hillcrest. And we've done lots of things through the years to help us engage reading the Word of God. But um, we found this tool, and we really felt like it would be one that could really help people. We want you to get a win in reading the Word. And we believe that that win is not just that, yeah, I read it, 
Or, yeah, I can get that $50 from my dad or anything like that. We think the win is that you, the Bible, and the Holy Spirit really coming together. We think that's an amazing combination, you, the Bible, and the Holy Spirit, and that God will speak to you as you read his word. So if you've ever struggled reading the Bible, I have, I know many have, uh, maybe most or all of us have, uh, this is a way that we're going to try to help people to engage the word like never before. And one of the great things about doing this is when you're all reading at the same place at the same time, you suddenly have common language, right? You say, well, I this week in our reading that we read together. So we want to go on a journey together in reading the Word of God. So you'll hear more about uh, the story in, uh, in weeks to come. And uh, we'll tell you more about how it's all rolling out. But just letting you know a little bit of a teaser trailer this morning. Oh, look at the time. All right, here we go. We're in the middle of a series about uh, the Sermon on the Mount. We're going through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and uh, we're talking about how it, Jesus just totally flips everything on its head and, and transforms people's lives. And uh, this week I have the, a passage of scripture. And when I got it, uh, so I've got a chunk of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. When I got to it, I realized I preached on this four years ago, this very text. And so I went and listened on podcast to the sermon. And man, was it ever a good sermon! <laughs> man, it was good. And uh, so I thought, man, what should I do? Just assign you homework, listen to the audio, or should I just lip sync? Well, I, the old me from four years ago, the younger me preaches in the background. I don't know. I, what, what, what? You don't do homework. Okay, okay. All right. I didn't, I didn't know what to do. But I, I thought, what I'll do is I'll give you the essence of that message, and I'm going to add some stuff that, uh, that I think is hopefully going to be helpful. But I'm going I'm to try to keep on a good pace here this morning. So it's one of the most misunderstood passages in the entire Bible and one of the most quoted. Can you think of what it is, even without guessing? Do not, do not criticize, do not judge. Do not judge, yes, do not judge is the, is the, is the phrase. And you know who loves to quote this? People who are responding to Christians who are pointing out things that are wrong, right? People love to do that. You know, this is... Do not judge gets a lot of play on the internet. It's really great. But it's really highly misunderstood. And I'm going to just show you the context. You know, when you get a phrase and you quote it and quote it and quote it, sometimes you go, I wonder if I'm actually understanding what it really means. Let's read what's around it, the context, so that we can see what's there. So I want to just give you, uh, I'm going to give you the the explanation I, I would give you later on in the sermon. I'm going to give you it right up front. When it comes to judging, it can mean two things. Judging can mean two things. In most passages of Scripture in the Bible, it means one or the other thing. It can mean condemning someone. Judging can mean condemning someone. Uh, Or, and and that's bad. That's criticized in the Bible, to condemn someone. I mean, God has the right to condemn us for our sin, but we're not God, right? Judgment can mean condemning someone. But it also can mean using discernment. So you could say, Boy, that person's really judgmental. What do you mean? You mean that they're harsh and they're always critical. That's what you mean, right? But if you say that person has good judgment, you're actually, that's you, that's a compliment. You're saying, wow, that person's wise and they're discerning. And so when we say judge, do not judge, well, there's two different ways you can take the word judge. And I'm going to give you some scriptures before we jump into our, our Sermon on the Mount. Romans 14 Uh, probably explains one version of judging. 
Romans 14, 10 to 13 says, You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? Okay, so this should give us the clue. This is the bad version of judging. Okay, this is what you should not be doing. Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. So, I think that phrase, treat them with contempt, is the big tell. It gives it away, right? That this is, this is not a good version of judging. This is the bad one. This is condemning someone. And in this text, it says, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. If we are ones who will give an account to God, and that God himself, who is rightly the judge of the world, of all mankind, will make a judgment on us, well then, you know what? I don't know if we have that much time to treat other people with contempt. <laughs> we got bigger fish to fry. We got something really important to pay attention to. And it's our stuff. It's our stuff. We really need to uh, stop passing contemptible judgment on others or condemning judgment on others and pay attention to where we're at and what we've got to take care of. Now, let's flip to the other side. So, Everyone in the room, I want, I, want to, I want to describe two types of people, and this, is ne- this is, doesn't describe everyone, but you might lean a little way, okay? So let's say over here, we have people who uh, are quick to judge, and let's just say, I'm going to call them trigger happy, okay? So they're just like, you know, they see something's wrong, and boom, it's, they're talking about it. They're pointing it out. They're, you know, right? They're trigger happy. And then there's people on the other side, they also maybe see stuff that's wrong, but they never want to talk about it. I'm going to call them uh, limp noodles, okay? It's just like, oh, I don't want to deal with that, right? These guys are shooting their guns off. They're bringing their guns to town every day. And these guys over here are like, no, I'm a little bit squeamish about conflict in any form. Or why would I ever tell anyone that anything ever is wrong? And so you've got these two extremes. And nobody's this and nobody's that. But you probably lean one way or the other. And let's talk about it. So 1 Corinthians 5, 9. So we've already written this verse. uh, Treating others with contempt is probably a good one for who are are leaning a little little more trigger happy. Is to say, hey, maybe just maybe you're not uh, being as helpful as you think you are. And maybe you're you're coming at people with pride and with contempt for them. And uh, you should be sobered by the fact that you'll give an account to God. And that might balance you out more into the middle. Let's read a verse that helps the other side. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 13 said, says, I, write to you, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. So the writer of 1 Corinthians, Paul, is not writing saying, hey, stop hanging out with people who aren't Christians or who people who do bad things. Because it's impossible. You stop going, you'd have to stop going to work. You'd have to stop going to the grocery store. You'd have to, stop, you'd have to just live in a cave, right? And uh, some people have done that, but I don't think that's God's plan for most lives, okay? In that case, you'd have to leave the world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy or 
Let me just put my page. An idolater or slanderer or drunkard or swindler. So, and then he goes on to say, do not even eat with such people. I'll just pause there for a second. So let me add my own clarifier to this. Because you say, whoa, I... So you're saying a brother or sister who does any of these sins, I shouldn't even eat with them? Well, let me, the clarifier I think that helps it is to add these words. Who is also stubbornly unrepentant. In other words, if someone says, hey, I know God's word speaks against all these things, and God's word does. And yet, I refuse to turn from these things. Well, then there is actually a role for Christians uh, challenge other Christians. There is actually a role. So if you're leaning this way, a little bit like, oh, I never want to ever tell anybody that anything's ever wrong, there is a role for us to actually speak to other Christians and say, hey, we're following Jesus. This is not the behavior of those who follow Jesus. Remember, the whole Sermon on the Mount is written in the context of what does it look like to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven? Jesus is on the mountainside, talking to people and saying, uh, announcing the arrival of a new kingdom, right? Not the Roman Empire that they all lived under the, the thumb of, but a new kingdom. It wasn't a, a kingdom of this world with a, with a um, uh, it's actually its own government, its own army. But it was a people group made up of people from many, it would be many nations, tribes, and tongues who together would form this new kingdom under the kingly rule of Jesus, so, what does it look like to, to be a subject of Jesus as your king? That's what he's spelling out in the Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, and there is a role in that for good judgment in relationship with other people who are also citizens of that kingdom. Right? Um, Jesus' followers are called the disciples. And you think that word, disciple... It's a lot like the word discipline, right? They come from the same root, right? So a disciple is someone who embraces the discipline of the leader or of the master, right? So if someone says, I've embraced the discipline. I am a disciple of Jesus. I'm a follower. And someone else will say, hey, I'm a follower too. They can help each other walk together in that. And we do need each other's help. And sometimes we have blind spots and that other person is meant to help us. So if you see someone and they're saying, I know this is in the word of God or they've, it's been pointed out, this is what God requires of his followers and they're just totally disregarding it, come and show them, come and tell them. But then if they totally disregard that, in Corinthians, they had to, like, the, the Corinthian church was a mess. That's the short story about them. They had to do some pretty severe stuff to sort of right the ship because people were allowing all sorts of ungodly stuff, un, which was totally unlike the kingdom of heaven. Here's the, the tagline that's really powerful in, at the end of it. It says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. And that should cause us a little, that should not make us happy. That should cause us some chills. Expel the wicked person from among you. Wow. So if you said, I don't ever want to correct anyone for doing anything wrong, this passage is pretty sobering, isn't it? That there is a, there's a need for judgment inside the church. 
No, there is, judgment's going to come to everyone, right? This passage spells it out, that God is our ultimate judge, and that he has the right to judge us, and that he will. But inside the church, there's a role for Christians to help one another uh, to walk with God. And now, this is written pretty strongly, because this is a leader, Paul, writing to the leaders of First the, the Corinthian church. So it's written pretty strongly. So there's another layer. If you ever say, well, uh, you know, I just think a church should be always, you know, happy and pleasing, and there's never any moment where anyone actually challenges someone else. Well, that wouldn't line up with what they experienced as the earliest followers of Jesus. They did challenge each other. And in fact, in this situation, they needed to expel someone from the church because they were unrepentant for what they were doing. It was a case of incest in the church. Literally, that's what it was. And I won't get into the whole story, but basically, someone was sleeping with, with uh, a man was sleeping with his mother, and no one was doing anything about it. And they were even proud of it. And so no matter how much you hate confrontation, there needs to be confrontation when there's things that are really wrong happening. And in this case, uh, Paul is the one saying, leaders in the church, you know, step up and confront. Okay, so this is a pretty harsh one because it's leadership to leadership. But Andy's, I liked Andy Stanley. He was preaching on this passage, and he had this really sort of hokey phrase. And I think it's helpful. It's hokey, but it's helpful. He said, he said this, to help, it was like a memory device. Just to remember this verse, he said, judge the believing, not the heathen. Try that with me. Just, let's just say it together. Judge the believing, not the heathen. Now, it's sort of crazy because we don't call people heathen. Right? I mean, that's sort of like a really old word, and it's ser- it sounds seriously insulting. But if it helps you to treat the heathen nicer, that's probably good worth, worth, worth remembering, right? A person, I've said this many times in this church, a person who's not fo- a follower of Jesus has not accepted the discipline of Jesus in their lives. They are not a disciple. It's totally unfair for a Christian to approach someone who's not a Christian and to say to them, Hey, you need to stop doing this or start doing this because of Jesus. They'll say, what? Who is Jesus to me? It doesn't make any sense to say, you should be following the discipline of Jesus when they have not come to trust Jesus with their lives. And so when it comes to a person who, uh, I mean, it's not like you can't help a person, but you don't help, you can't help, you can't uh, For a Christian, you come to them on the basis of their accepting Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So you've accepted Jesus as your Lord. And so, here are the things that line up with that. But for a person who hasn't trusted Jesus with their life, you don't come on that basis. You still might come to help them. Say, this is hurting you. Or this is dangerous. Or I'm worried about how this will work out in your life. You still out of care and concern might help them, but not on the basis that they've accepted the lordship of Jesus because they haven't. So it's different inside the church than it's outside the church. Judge the believing, not the heathen. Okay, now we get to our passage, Matthew 7. Matthew 7, 1 to 6. Do not judge or you too will be judged. 
For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Okay. So, this is, again, some people just stop here and they say, okay, so we're never to judge. And they don't read the rest. When you get to the rest, you'll figure out, actually, this passage is not talking about not judging. It's actually teaching you how to judge. That's the amazing thing about it. You just don't see it coming when you see that first tagline, do not judge. You're like, oh, I got it. I don't need to read anymore, Jesus. But when you get further, you realize Jesus is actually spelling out how to judge. And, and, but first thing he talks about is this measure stuff, right? The measure you use, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So are you using a condemning measure in your judgment of other people? Or are you using a merciful measure? Are you using a condemning measure or a merciful measure? Do you know what? what? Jesus' principle is true. Whatever measure you use when you're uh, bringing judgment into someone else's life, and I'm even talking about good judgment, that's when you fail, that's what will boomerang back to you. If your life is about, uh, you know, what's wrong with you? Get it together. Can't you ever do it right? When you fail, you'll get treated like that too. I'll give you a quick story. I was uh, working at Kettleston Camp years ago. Back then, youth pastors would play the role of director. And uh, so I was the director and had all these counselors uh, who were, you know, on the org chart. They were under me. I was telling them what to do. And I was, one of the things I said to them every day, remember, you're here to be with your kids. You're not here to, you know, Spend time with each other. Or do it. You're here to be with your kids. You want to keep your kids safe. You know, so all week when I'd see counselors who'd be like wandering around the grounds with no kids around them, I would confront them. I'd say, hey, where are your kids? Where are your kids? And they'd be like, oh, yeah, right. Oh, I think they're around here. Oh, they could be drowning. Go find your kids. Anyhow, so that was what I was doing all week. I was, now, I'm, I'm making myself sound probably a little more confrontative than I really was, but... It's for illustrative purposes. You'll have to. So all week, where are your kids? Where are your kids? Where are your kids? End of the week comes, and it, we realize that next week we're, we're I don't, I'm going to, you know, I'm not needed to be the director anymore. I'm going to be going home or something like that. But we find out that we're short one counselor for one of the boys' cabins. And we can't find anyone. So I volunteered. I said, well, I, I I'd be happy to counsel a bunch of kids, you know. How hard can it be? <laughs> Anyhow, I, so everybody's like, that's great. So I show up the next week for the staff training, and now I'm not sitting at the director's chair. I'm sitting on the couches with the rest of the counselors. And they're like, you're counseling this week? I'm like, yeah, good. <laughs> Guess what they said to me all week? Steve, where are your kids? Where are you? Because I could get five feet from my kids, and they'd be like, where are your kids? Oh, they loved it. They absolutely loved it. Well, I was getting, I'd used a certain measure in my judgment with them, and they were giving it back with the exact same measure. So when you, if you decided in your life that, uh, or if you have a practice in your life of using a measure of condemnation, be careful. You might be doing that because you, th you think in your mind, I don't mess up as other people mess up, so I'm safe in this. But guess what? When you fail, you'll get very little mercy from most people. 
If you use a merciful measure, if you come to people with real care and compassion for where they are, even when you're making a judgment call on something that, you know, is maybe harmful or wrong in their lives, when you fail later, they're more likely to come to you with a merciful measure and with the same approach. So, in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So are you using a condemning measure or a merciful, merciful one? You'll get it back. Whatever you're, measure, whatever you're doling out now will come back to you later. Verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So if you want to help people see clearly and be able to remove the stuff from their lives that isn't good, we're given a very specific instruction in order to be able to do that. And that is first, take the plank out of your own eye. In other words, first start with your own life. So people that aren't dealing with their own stuff make really bad helpers to help other people deal with their stuff. Especially if you don't see your own stuff. You don't, you're not aware of it. So this illustration, Jesus, of course, he's a, he makes this great big exaggeration to make the point. But imagine someone with a speck of sawdust in the corner of their eye on the job site. Like, hey, buddy, I, something got past your safety glasses and it's right there in the corner of your eye. And it's like, but you have a plank protruding out the side of your face. It's just a ludicrous. I mean, Jesus obviously had a sense of humor. He had lots of these little illustrations where it was just like, people would probably laugh at this in that era and go, oh, a plank sticking out of your eye. That's hilarious. And that guy clearly couldn't see to help the guy with the sawdust. And, you know, that's probably, you know, first century humor. Jesus doing stand-up. I don't know. But it would be ridiculous for people to go, oh, yeah, they get it. They get the point. It's ridiculous that that person would be the person who could help the other person. So first you need to take to deal with the stuff in your life. And then let's get to the last verse. It says, do not give dogs what is sacred and do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. I, when I read this again, even though I preached on it four years ago, I, I always puzzle about this a little bit. I'm like, wow, Jesus, it's like you just switch gears to this other thing. But you know what? It's really helpful that it's right here. Because dogs... Pigs? What happened to not judging? You know, that there's lots of like animal terminology used in the New Testament about people. In other words, people are acting like dogs. And you should know that. You should be able to discern that. Or they're acting like pigs, like the pearls to pigs thing. If you have something that's so precious and so valuable and you toss it down, a pig is not going to care about that. They're going to step on it, defecate on it. They don't care, right? So the illustration works. But don't miss this. We're called to discern when people are behaving like animals. You can't obey the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount without using good judgment and without discernment. 
In fact, all around this passage are calls to discernment. I'm not going to steal from, I don't want to steal anything from next week's sermon, but we're going to, there's false teachers are in there. You have to discern who is a false teacher and who's not a false teacher. You have to discern who's acting like a dog, who's acting like a pig. You taking something precious, maybe the, uh, your relationship with God, and you want to share that with somebody else. And they have no use for it, and all they do is heap abuse on you. You need to discern that. You need to discern when a person's not really open. I think about Luke 10. I'm going to preach a sermon on Luke 10 someday. Maybe I'll preach a series of sermons. I'm not sure. But it's been, it was one I sort of heard at camp, and it really has resonated, and it's impacting me. It continues to impact me. In it, it says, you know, go into people's houses. Jesus is sending out the seven to Go into people's houses and say, Speak peace to this house. So you just speak blessing onto these houses. And look for the man of peace. Maybe there'll be a person or a man or a woman in that home who really is receptive. Do you know that there are people really receptive all around us in Moose Jaw to the news about Jesus and also to the blessing and the experience of the kingdom that comes? There are people that are really receptive. But then there are people like this, dogs, pigs. They're not dogs and pigs. They're acting like them. And they're not receptive. They're no more interested in the gospel at this stage in their lives than a a pig is interested in a pearl. And it takes discernment to go, which is which? Which is the person where their heart is soft and they're receptive? I should move towards them. And this person, I share with them about something and they're not receptive? Okay. In the Luke 10 example, he said, just shake the dust off your feet. Got a little dusty in that interaction. And go find that other person. You know, I, there's so many animal analogies in the New Testament. <laughs> Reminds me of the movie American Sniper. I still haven't seen the movie. I'm not sure if I ever will. I still haven't read any reviews. But I watched a clip of it. It's a dad talking to the boys. And he says, and there's been a fight at school. And he says, you know, some, of, some, some people are sheep. Most people are sheep. And some people are wolves. And you know what we are? And then the boys say, what? We're sheepdogs. <laughs> it's an interesting, I don't know. Has anyone seen that clip? I don't know. I have, that's the only thing I've seen out of the movie. I don't, I'm not recommending the movie. I haven't watched the rest. But anyhow, it reminded me, when I saw the clip, it reminded me of Jesus teaching about sheep. I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves, right? I'm sending you out into these dangerous scenarios. And I had a pastor friend um, who pastors a bigger church than this, and he was telling me about his interaction with somebody. He was, he, there was someone in his church who was behaving badly. He didn't tell me the details. He just knew, told me he was behaving very badly and, he, and was leading other people astray. And so he was having a very stern conversation with them in the hallway of, of the church. And someone came along and saw this happening and then took the pastor aside afterwards and said, Pastor, you're not a very good shepherd. It seems to me like you were being so harsh. Like you were beating one of your sheep. And his response was this. He said, that's not a sheep. That's a wolf. (laughs) I love those tough guy pastors. I wish I was one. I mean, if I was, you know, in one of those, you know, maybe it's only baby boomers get to be like Clint Eastwood. But I wish I was. You know, it's exciting. But anyhow, I love those kind of stories. But it takes discernment to know that. It takes good judgment to know that. 
to say this person is not acting like a sheep who's following Jesus. He's acting like a wolf ready to devour the flock. And as an under-shepherd or a sheepdog or whatever I am, I have a role to play in judging that. For their good, for others' good. So we need, so Jesus, so it can be bad on both ends. In this passage, it can be bad on both ends. The one end is that we're harsh in our judgment. We're condemning in our judgment. Uh, We're hasty in our judgment. And so we need to take the plank out of our own eye first. Uh, On the other end, you might come to somebody and they're totally unresponsive. Like pearls with like pearls and pigs. So it can go badly either way. But oh, is it great when it goes right? It is amazing when it goes right. When a brother or sister approaches another brother or sister and says, Hey, I'm really nervous about this conversation. I, I didn't want to bring this up. You know I love you. You know I hold you in high regard. You know I want to see you flourish in life. You know all my thoughts towards you are blessing, blessing, blessing. And I know right now I'm probably spending a bit of equity to have this conversation, but I'm hoping that out of it will come something really good for you. That's why I want to talk to you about something that's difficult, and this is what it is. And then that other person is like, they they get over the initial, and they catch on that that other person really cares about them. And that they're actually doing something very awkward and difficult in order for their life to be better. And they receive it. And they go, wow, you took a risk coming to me to point out this area in my life or this action or this behavior. And I I respect that. And thank you. And you've probably actually prevented me from, you know, a little bit of a train wreck in my life, and thank you. I think that's what it's supposed to look like. Not harsh and condemning in the initial judgment and not, and not uh, totally resistant or belligerent in the response, but to actually people help each other in following Jesus. But it takes plank removal <laughs> to do it. You know, we're, we're saying this fall we want to engage God's word like never before. Well, Hebrews 4.12 tells us why that's so important. It says the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It, here's the tagline, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So you say, I'm, i got to have that kind of conversation with somebody, but I don't know if I've removed the plank in my eye. I don't know if I'm helpful in this conversation. I don't know if I will be able to be, to be the kind of person to walk alongside of this person. Well, read the word regularly because it will judge the thoughts and attitudes of your heart. It'll show you the plank. It'll show you the plank in your life. You, if you're engaging in the word, you'll find, oh man, I, there's things that I need to repent of. You know what? The best people to help other people to change is people who are changing. Do you, like, if you come in, you should, you should 
experience this in a greater and greater measure as you walk with Jesus. I sense that he is challenging very fundamental things in your life. That he is challenging things that maybe you held dear, maybe they were a bigger priority, maybe they ranked higher, maybe they're not good, whatever. But he's challenging things in your life, attitudes, behaviors. And that you're on this journey and that as he challenges you, you're responsive in your heart to his judgment. And that makes you really good to walk with somebody else. Because you don't come into a situation and go, Boy, the sin that they're dealing with, I surely don't deal with that. You actually have the other experience. You go, whoa. Kurt said it in his sermon so well uh, months ago. He said, it's like there's this acorn of evil in my heart. And if it was planted just right, it it would spawn a whole forest of evil. There are lines that... I might not admit it to myself, but there are lines I've crossed, and it's shocked me that I crossed them. But it was a wake-up call to help me realize that I need Jesus more than I ever realized in the first place. So people who are repenting, people who are confessing, people who are saying, God, help me, I need you, are great people to walk with people who need to see a change in their lives. Because they don't come with harsh judgment. They know that uh, they need God's grace just as much as the next person. In fact, they feel it even more strongly probably than the person they're going to help. It's just like, what's that old saying? It's like one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. They come with that kind of an attitude. So let God's word search you. Approach the other person with mercy and not contempt. It's, it's several places in the New Testament. I think... Luke 6.36 says it, Romans 14.10. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. You know, even when God judges us or he disciplines us, he does it in mercy. So be like him. Let me read you, I'm going to read you one more scripture. Let me look at the time. I'm going to tell you two stories. I didn't tell you two stories. Okay. So I'm doing premarital counseling with a couple, one of my old youth kids. And I say, so I haven't seen you for a few years. What church are you attending? And uh, we're not. Oh. And I knew that the young lady, had she had been part of the youth group. And, and I knew that she'd experienced God at different points in her journey in the youth ministry. So I thought, there's got to be something there, some sort of seed. And I said, I said well, what... Why? Why aren't you attending a church? There's lots of great churches in this town, and, and I could recommend several. It doesn't have to be our church, but I could recommend several churches that are good that you'd probably like. And uh, she said, no, why? I, I don't think I'll go back to church. Why? I said, is it the preacher? No. Was it the music? You know, the, all these things you work hard at. She said, it was my friends. I said, your friends? You had friends in the church, and you stopped? What? Tell me what happened. She said, Every time, I, she said, I would sort of come to church sporadically. And every time I would come, my friends would say, where were you last week? You, you, you don't come to church very often. What's wrong with you? So instead of welcoming her, instead of saying, you're here. We're so happy to see you. 
there was a sense that she was failing about all those times she didn't come. So eventually she just stopped hating the, she, start, she hated the feeling of just failing spiritually, and so she stopped coming. So it's like, oh. So we worked hard to try to create the right kind of environment for you and to love you, and to, but you couldn't get over that hurdle of judgment in the church. Not a major one. It was major for her, though. It was major for her. I'll tell you one more story. And this is a story about a really judgmental person. In fact, when you hear how, how, how judgmental this person was, you'll realize how much better are, you are than them. <laughs> I'm just trying to trick you. 25 years ago, no, 24 maybe, I was helping with a, a program called Street Invaders. Yeah, awesome program. Lots of teenagers, some of our in fact, it's still running today, and some of the teenagers in our church went this summer to Street Meters. Anyhow, it's a great ministry thing. All these kids get trained, and then they go out and they serve in all sorts of different cities, and uh, it's a great adventure for God. It's amazing. I won't get into it all. Anyhow, before they go out, there's a time of commissioning to send them out, to pray for them and bless them and send them out. And uh, I was partnered with Scott Francis, some of you know him, and we, together our job was to man this one chair. There's going to be eight chairs at the front of this church auditorium, and uh, we were going to call up these students one by one, and they were going to come and sit in whatever chair was empty at the time, and we were going to pray for them before they went out to some city and served and, and just had this adventure for God. So that was our job. And I said, I'm pumped that I'm partnered with you, Scott. I know you really well. I trust you. You're a good friend. And so when, when uh, you know, people come up, we're going to pray for them. And it, but now something had been happening. I have to tell you the backstory. All my younger brother, who's 10 years younger than me, so I was 23 at the time and he was 13. Uh, he was one of the kids on, or the teenagers on this, and he was one of the youngest ones there. And uh, all week he embarrassed me. All week I was so embarrassed of my brother. He just was so annoying and saying inappropriate things, and he just seemed so cocky. And I just could tell you a whole list of things that I didn't like about my brother that week. And I just was thoroughly annoyed. I didn't want anything. I didn't want to be associated with him or spend any time with him. I was a leader on this thing. He was one of the punk kids. And I did not want to hang out with my brother because I was really annoyed with him. So I said to Scott, I said, I'm so excited to pray for kids. I said, but there's an exception, I said. I said, there's eight chairs, so the chances of my brother ending up in this chair is very low. But just in case he does, would you pray for him? Because I don't think what would come out of my mouth would be very encouraging. Because he's been so annoying this week. And Scott, you know, in understanding where I'm coming from, says, don't worry. I got it covered. I said, thanks, Scott. You're a great friend. Anyhow. I thought, one in eight chance, it's not going to happen, but just in case, I've got it covered. The night goes on, we're praying for kids, we're encouraging them. Strange, eh? I could have that in my heart and yet still be praying for people. Interesting. Anyhow, I'm praying for kids, and Scott is, and, and God's given us encouraging things to say to kids. Some stuff we didn't even know about them. It's an amazing experience, really cool experience. We get closer to the end of the night, and I hear the person who's calling the next name and calls my little brother's name. And lo and behold, he ends up in our chair. I thought, one in eight chance. Oh, good thing I've got this covered. Scott's got this. 
So I look at Scott and I go, this is the thing we were worried about, and now you can take care of this. And so Scott's like, okay. And so he just sort of leans down to pray for my brother, and he says nothing. And then he just stands up again, and he looks at me and goes, I just got nothing. And right about then, I wasn't only angry at my brother. So I said, oh, I'm going to be praying for my brother? Up until that point, all I could think of was ways to rebuke him, ways to correct him, ways to point out how foolish and immature he was. But I stopped. Right? I mean, I want God to be merciful to me. And he has been merciful to me. And so I had a little prayer before the prayer. And it was like, God, you know exactly where I'm at. And this is, how can I pray for my brother in this condition? So you're going to have to do something, a mini miracle right now. And he did. Just, it's like God just started to download into my thinking what it must be like to be my brother. I had never asked the question, you know, like, like what it would be like to be 13-year-old him on this big adventure that's a little bit scary and lots of people to impress and there's your big brother over there, you know, who's a leader. And I don't know, like suddenly God started to show me some things. And he started to show me some criticisms that my brother had experienced in his life. Whereas, you know, you know, he was the youngest of seven children. There were six others who could give a critique on, why don't you grow up? Why are you being so immature? Why can't you get anything right? I'm sure a lot of those words were said along the way by me and, and maybe by some of my siblings as well. And so here's this moment where God is speaking to me and, and I started to pray for my brother and I started to basically share what God was downloading. I sort of said, you know what, Phil, you've probably had some words come into your life that have been negative to limit your potential and to also darken how you see yourself. And God's chosen this moment, and he's chosen me to correct that. And I started speaking what I couldn't speak all week over my brother. Words of blessing, words of affirmation, words of affection. And we're not a super affectionate family. I had started to come out of me just, you know, this, this is a lie of the enemy. Don't believe this. Believe this. This is what God says to you. And all these things started to just flow out of my life. And you could do so much for God. In fact, you might be the greatest of all your siblings in living for God. Don't aim low. Aim high. Live for Jesus. Not me. It wasn't me. It was him. So you got to help remove a speck from somebody's eye. Cry out for help. Cry out for God to melt your heart for that person. To give you a tenderness. To give you a compassion. You're going to have to say truthful words. You might have to say confrontative words. You might have to say words that are hard for you to say. But cry out to God that he'll give you not only the way and the strategy and the words to be able to bring up the issue, but a heart for the other person that, re that reflects how God has been merciful to you. So God can do a miracle, a mini miracle through you. Let's stand together.